Well, welcome to this next episode of uh, the CSA um, Horizon podcast series. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Brian Harris, Principal of Voice Seminary, today. Um, welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, Rob. Good to be with yeah. you. Great. Brian, this um, this invitation to join the podcast series um, was was slightly by accident. It's not that I didn't want to interview you. I've uh, I've enjoyed our previous interactions very much so. But this specific invitation um, arose from our last conversation, um, where having landed here, um, been engaged in the type of research um, that I've undertaken for for nearly a decade now in the measurement of human relationships. I saw an opportunity in the context I was in to begin exploring some of those theological underpinnings of of that social science background. And so I reached out to you. We started to have a conversation. It quickly became apparent um, that this was rich material for for others to engage in. At least I hope so. Um, We began starting to talk about some of the work of Stanley Grentz, this, as you described it, a, a sort of trialogue between the social sciences, theology, church history. And I want to explore for people today, with people, with you, um, this notion of the theological foundations of good relationships, networks, community. Um, and, uh, and and I just wonder where we might start, um, perhaps with Grentz, perhaps with some of that, um, if we may. Sure, sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was a lovely conversation we had before, and I hope that this will be a lovely conversation. It was almost accidental. We were just talking, and in the flow of that, suddenly we were having quite a deep conversation. And uh, and so, uh, well, let's let's. Try. I can't actually remember all the things I said, so I'm sure that I passed on all these gems of wisdom that uh, will probably elude me today. But I think we started off by saying, saying this. I mean, from a biblical point of view, the, the the whole theme of relationship begins in those opening chapters of Genesis, as so very many things do. Uh, where, where the first not good that God speaks about his good creation is that it's just not good for the man to be alone. And, and, and while we sometimes think of that as being a motif for marriage, it's not primarily that. It's actually, you, you know, the, Adam needs to be in relationship with someone who's, who's a peer, uh, someone who's in the same kind of level as he actually is. Uh, and, and I think we also mentioned, of course, that, that even earlier we've been told that, that, that the God who makes the world is, is the God who is the triune God, the God who, you know, as, as we unpack scripture, we discover this God is revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. So, so this God who reaches out to us, not because God is lonely in God's own self, because God is triune, but because God just loves to be in relationship and wants to be in relationship with this, this creation that, that, that he's made. So it's not good for the man to be alone, and it's not good for people to be apart from each other or to be apart from God. And, and as you go through those opening chapters of Genesis, it's not just that either, is it? It's, it's, it's God, God says, you know, here, I've made this world. Now, you know what I haven't done? I haven't given these animals a name. Uh, you, you know, let me bring them to you. I'm, I'm really interested to see what you'll name them. And, and of course, we know that, that names, in a real sense, humanize things and, and help to give a story. And, and if you misname something, it's, you, you hold it back and you, and you restrict what it can be. And if you rightly name it, you give it huge potential. Uh, and, and so all of this is, is just in these opening chapters of, of the Bible, which just suggests the world is about relationships. It's about, uh, it's about community and it's about being in community together. Uh, 
and 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 I think probably it was in that that context that that I made the comment that uh, some theologians feel so strongly about that, and I cited the theologian that I did my particular PhD research on, Stanley Grants, uh, that that he would say that that community is actually the integrative motif in theology. In other words, uh, it's it's it's. It's community that helps you to make sense of everything that's actually happening. Why is God at work in the world? What is God wanting to do? What does it always come back to? And, and, and Rents would say the thing that makes sense of all the different stories is that God is creating community with between people, between God, between the world, between other human beings. And and that that rich flourishing life is actually what scripture ultimately is all about. So 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 there you go. And in a nutshell, that's the conversation I think we started having. And and then we went on further. So that's great. So, in your mind, why is it is it or why is it important that theology and the social sciences do meet? Um, you know, why is it necessary to have that conversation between you know the bodies, the institutions, the organisations that represent religion? You know, over time, we'll call that church history. If, if that's a good enough definition for that. And we'll we'll talk about where I come from and my background in the social sciences and, and theology. Why is it important to have that debate and conversation? Well, it's important in the first place because we're making assumptions uh, that, that tend to be, uh, tend to derive from the social sciences in one way or another in the first place anyway. So, so if we don't have the conversation, we, we're going to be shaped by assumptions that we haven't actually examined. Uh, now, now, when I say we should examine our assumptions, I don't necessarily mean that we should examine them in a kind of paranoid fashion. We, we, I'm going to find out what's wrong and that needs to change. Uh, you know, I think I don't think we need to operate from an instant kind of hermeneutic of suspicion. You know, everything's wrong about what what, what we've been told. Um, but I think we need to recognize that context hugely shapes what we can see in Scripture, how we understand it, uh, our understanding of the world. And to, 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 to go back to my theological mentor then, or the, the person whose work I studied uh, for my PhD, Stan Grentz, he, he spoke about theological construction. He said that if you're going to build any theological idea or ask the question, how do we know that something's true? How do we know that it's theologically valid? Um, he said that it, it comes out of this, this trialogue, this, this three-way conversation between what he called the normie norm, uh, the scriptures, the Bible. So, so, so here's our normie norm. We, we, we evaluate everything against the story of the Bible. But, but we have to see how that's actually worked out in, in the story of God through history. So, so we, we, we also converse with tradition and the tradition of the church. And then he said, but you've also got to be in conversation with your contemporary context or culture, as he called it. And, and most often we understand our culture in terms of, of the social sciences coming to us. And so, so he said that, you know, if you take any particular topic, you, you begin this trialogue, you, you hear these, these three voices. So, so what do we think the Bible says about this? How, how has that been understood in the history of the church? What, 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 what's, what does the world today, what does contemporary society tell us about this? And, and as these three voices come in, we, we quickly realize that some of them resonate beautifully and, and there's absolute agreement and, and the one enriches the other and takes it a little further. Sometimes there's a little, uh, oops, I wonder if that's really the case. We haven't really seen that that, that that way before. And and you might then think that, you know, with that, the posture should be one of suspicion. That's not necessarily how it should be. It's, it should, I think it should rather be, that's really interesting. So, so you know, what's coming from the social sciences today suggests that that might not be quite the last word on, on, on the topic. And, and let's remember that, that the Bible often introduces ideas, but not necessarily at great depth. So, so, so it introduces, just drops this little seed idea into something. 
And, and we've sometimes assumed that that seed idea meant something. But, uh, you know, with more information, you think, oh, actually, it could go in quite a different direction. Maybe we, we aren't reading that, that the right way. And so understanding of many things actually becomes a whole lot deeper. Um, yeah, and so as that conversation goes by, it becomes a, a rich and a challenging one. And, and sometimes you realize that there are lines of real difference and, and we disagree. Well, then at least we know what we're disagreeing about because we, we've had, had the conversation openly. Sometimes you, you realize that there's a point of reconciliation. Sometimes you, you realize actually we need to reimagine something uh, and something may take on, on greater significance. So that's, that's fascinating. Um, because what I'm really interested in and, and the crux of our conversation, I really hope that we'll, we'll get to today is, is a real sort of discussion around the implications for education. So I'm particularly thinking about this at a, at a systems level. Um, I try to avoid the use, avoid using the word system. There's a, it's almost considered to be a slightly dirty word in, in Australia, right? You know, the, the preferred word, perhaps ecosystem system seems to have a, a kind of connotation, but I think, school improvement at a systems level or systems leadership, system thinking obviously is a discipline um, and and recognised body of work that interacts in, in the education sphere. And and I said at the beginning of, um, just as we, just before we came on air, I said I'd been engaging with with Graham Cross um, in our last podcast, podcast episode, which is exploring, you know, his leadership of a series of, of schools across a, a network, across a system as a model. Um, and I suppose what I really wanted to bury down in this, into today was this, is this, how does that trilogue impact something like our view of schools at the moment as isolated entities, places by themselves with we, and I say we, CSA, the Relationships Foundation have done a lot of research over the last three years about the kind of optimal conditions and, and reasons behind a, a highly relational classroom culture, a staffing culture. But as I've moved to Australia and, and begun this particular role, I'm interested in the types of ways in which schools could and should work closer together. And I wanted to really sort of an, explore the Bible's encouragement for this, you know, theologically thinking about our schools, this this podcast, listen to leaders of schools across our networks. Why do why should we? I mean, I'm I'm prepared for you to tell me you shouldn't, but why must we or could we think about schools differently as as these siloed, isolated places? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that that, that Christian schools pride themselves on trying to operate from a, a biblical understanding of the world. And certainly if you, if you start to understand yourself as isolated places, well, give yourself a big cross. That, that, that knocks you out if, if you're trying to operate from a biblical point of view because the, 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 the Bible is, is totally this, this book about being in community with one another. In fact, one of our most common misreadings of Scripture is that, that we take on Western individualism and we read the text through the lens of, of Western individualism. And the Bible just doesn't know that world at all and it's not particularly appreciative of it. So, so like just a very obvious level, you, you, you take one of the Ten Commandments, uh, honour your father and your mother that your life in the land will be long. And, and we look at that and, and Western individualists that we are, we say, well, if I honour my mother, if I honour my father, I'm going to live to 93. I mean, that's not actually what that passage is saying. Let's say the society that honours parenting 
will have a very good future. It, it immediately goes to the communal. This is not about how any one particular individual fares. You know, so you might have had a terrible relationship with your parents and done all the wrong things, but still live a very long life. It's not actually talking about that at all. It's talking about societal prospering because it goes straight to the communal. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, that's the way the Bible views the world the whole time, that we are in relationship with one another. We are in relationship with God. We are in relationship uh, you, you know, with each other. We're in relationship with the world as such. And, and we're part of a family. And we're part of the family of the church. Uh, and that matters as well, which is why, you know, when you do this theological construction, it's this trilogue. Uh, it's, it's with Scripture and all the stories of Scripture and the way that all the suggestive ways which we, we learn about God through those different narratives which you find in Scripture. But we're also in interaction with the story of the church uh, through, through the last 2,000 years. And, and so if you say, should schools be isolated? Oh my goodness, it's not just that schools must be connected, we must also be connected yet again to a much bigger story, the story of the church. And why should we do that? Well, because we have a family history. And, and, and for example, uh, if, you, if you know your own personal individual family history, you, they're almost certainly going to be uh, you know, honor moments where your family's done really well and you feel proud of your family and they're usually shame moments and those are a little uncomfortable. But it helps to know your family history because, because you, you, you get the sense of this is who we are. Now, now, when we interact with the history of the church, we say, this is who we are. We have our better moments. We have our worst moments. Uh, you can look at the life of the early church, for example. You know, right from the start, this was a community that defined itself with some key understandings. One of the, the, the distinct differences with the contemporary society was that, that the early church start, started with an understanding that every single human being was made in the image of God and had infinite value because of that. And oh my goodness, you do go a very different journey if you, if you start with that assumption, then start with another assumption that actually some people are superior to others and matter more. Uh, I mean, the world just goes in quite a different way if you, if you between those, those two views of the world. And until then, the view of the world was some people are superior to others and therefore life should treat them better. And, and, and the world goes in, in that particular way. The early Christians didn't believe that. They believed that, 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 that every human life mattered. Now, now that's part of the, the wonderful part of the history of the church. And you can look at all kinds of innovations and great things which we've done because of that. And those are the pride moments we have in our history. But, but when you look back at the history of the church, there are also great shame moments. I mean, you, you go back a thousand years roughly to the, the Crusades. Um, one of the, the accounts from the Crusades that, that I find always challenges me is, is the start of the Second Crusade. So this takes place around about uh, the middle of the, of the 12th century. And the First Crusade is taking place and didn't go particularly well. And there's, there's no great appetite for, for the Second Crusade. Uh, and it looks like it's not going to happen. And then St. Bernard of Claveau, you know, one of the great divines, a, a wonderful man, he, he wrote just this most marvelous hymn, Oh, oh Sacred Head, Sore Wounded. And when you read the words of that, that, that hymn, you, you feel like you're standing at the cross of Jesus. It's so pious. It's so beautiful. And, and St. Bernard uh, comes and he has said no appetite for the Second Crusade. He preaches what, what gets called uh, the Sermon of His Life. And suddenly everyone is, is roused up and wants to have a second crusade and the second crusade takes place. And oh my goodness, the harm and the damage that it does. And, and it's just this extraordinary shame story that comes. And, and almost a thousand years later, you know, people still point back to the church and say, yeah, but look at the crusades, look at what you did. So, so that's part of our family history. Why am I bringing that up? I'm just saying that, that, that we all have to grapple with these many dimensions of what it means to be part of of a biblical story 
a historical story, you, you know, we're part of the family of God. And then now we've got a contemporary story, which, which we're writing. And we need to write it together because it is our family. And, and we need to actually think quite carefully. When is our family at its best? Uh, when is our family at its worst? Our family at its best is, is as with that early church. Every single human being matters. Every single human being has been made in the image of God. We are in close relationship with one another. Our family at its worst is a, a piety detached from humanity. Uh, so, so, so you have at the Crusades this great piety around the cross, uh, absolutely there. As I say, Sir Bernard writes these beautiful, beautiful hymns about, about the cross and about Jesus dying on the cross, but somehow not able to see Jesus in the neighbor, Jesus in the other, Jesus in the person with whom we disagree. And so a disastrous, absolutely disastrous part of our history takes place. Now, now if we don't learn from that, then we are a family that just doesn't grow. And I mean, this is all a long way, I guess, to, to, to get into your, your first question, but how then should we act? Should we act as, as though we are systems here? Then systems just sounds too cold to me. I, I must agree, though, that ultimately it is the undergirding theory. But we're in interconnection with one another. And, and what happens in the Christian school down the road from me impacts how, how I can, can, can be part, of, part of, of the Christian school family. Uh, you know, no one is an island, and, and that's a very, very biblical view of the world. Uh, that, that we can't operate separately from one, one another. And it's not just that we should cooperate, but we should ask deep questions of one another. Who is this family that, that we're part of? When are we at our best? When are we at our worst? When are we at our most vulnerable? We're at our most vulnerable, like most people, when we become desperate for power, uh, when we think that it doesn't matter, you know, what happens so long as we win. Uh, you know, we, we do, the history of the church says we do extraordinarily bad things when we have too much power and we think that, that the most important thing is to hold on to power. Uh, that's when we really trip ourselves up. That's our family story. We must learn from it. Brilliant. I was um, thinking about, I've written a lot about um, the importance of, of of smaller structures in order that we get to know each other, you know, and I often cite, you know, patterns in the early church. So, for example, the the, the nature or the degree to which People would go to the temple, often to worship in their thousands, but they primarily knew each other in the context of smaller home churches, that they were often breaking down the giantism of these structures into smaller groups. What about what about to the principal who says, just reflecting a bit of church history back, well, you know what, uh, what I'm doing here, I've got this primary responsibility for families, for children, for this this community I'm developing here. If I if I put my eye somewhere else, um, you know, it, I, I can't be responsible for other people as well. There's there's only so far that I can go. There's only so much I can do. I have to be careful about how I define family here. Family for me is much smaller. What might what might you say back to that point? So so, so I think it's. I understand, and I can be sympathetic up to a point. So, so, so obviously, your your first responsibility is to your local context, and you've got to say, God has entrusted me with leadership in this community, but but you still don't operate in isolation. Uh, so, it's a my eye must be on the local, and and probably my main attention should actually be there. But I am part of a much wider whole. Uh, and certainly the whole story of the church is about that. So, so right from the start, the church had apostles, those who kind of went beyond the local context, spoke to others, helped them to know what was happening elsewhere, helped them to learn the best from other contexts. And, 
and re- and helped them to realize that there was a responsibility for the whole as, as well. So, so yes, my first responsibility is to my local context. I'm not going to dispute that, but but God does actually give us capacity for more. And the trouble is that that when we don't recognize that, we don't learn from the stories of other people. Uh, we we sometimes don't contribute. We sometimes don't realize how fortunate we are, and so we become selfish, um, and we just forget that we're part of the family of God. Uh, and and God is at work in the world. It's a much bigger story than my local little context. So what would I? What would you say if I then said, well, that's true, but then also that the that the Old Testament in particular is is a is a picture of of something that's also quite tribal. Um, now perhaps I'm looking at that through a Western individual lens, but I wonder whether that's something that was a pattern set down for good or something that actually worked in the end uh, for, 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 for ill, you know, that actually was a, um, a, a something that was competitive, um, something that was damaging, something that overall spoilt um, the pattern and growth of, of relationship amongst people. Yeah, so, so I would say the Old Testament at its worst is tribal, and, and, and that's what, why we find so much of it distressing today. Uh, the the Old Testament, or let, let's call it what perhaps is a better word for it, the Hebrew Bible, uh, because it is the Bible for for Hebrew people to this day. Um, at its best, it, it goes back to the very call of Abraham. I have called you that you might. I am blessing you, and I will make your nation that is blessed. That all the nations in the world will be blessed through 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 you. Uh, now, yes, that did mean that there were many individual ways in which which the nation of Israel was blessed. Uh, but at its best, it was always a nation that had its eye for the other. Yes, so so you could take, for example, the story of Jonah. Uh, Now, we we love that story. We've told many times before, but in the end, it's about a prophet uh, being sent to the enemy, Assyria, uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, who in in time, not that much later, was going to come around and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. So so a major enemy. And and Jonah has to go and, and bring these people to repentance. He does not want to do it. And you can understand why, because he's thinking about people in, people out. You know, these are not my people. Why must I bless them? But, but the Bible basically says Jonah was wrong. Jonah didn't have enough compassion. Jonah forgot that, that the reason that, that God had called this nation was that all the nations in the world would be blessed. So, so yes, you're absolutely right. There is a part of the Old Testament that's very tribal. It is the Old Testament at its, uh, it, it is the people of God at their weakest. So, so I spoke in terms of the history of the church. You know, what do we learn from our family history? We've, we've got wonderful moments. We've got terribly sad moments. When you when you read the Old Testament, we need to recognize that, that much of the Old Testament is a cr- critique of, of the people. In fact, it's one of the reasons why the Old Testament, in fact, the Bible as a whole, is such remarkable literature. I mean, almost all the literature from, from the ancient world is 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 praise literature, you know, why our people are the best and why are we the greatest. Uh, as a genre of literature, the Bible is quite different. It is very self-critical and it's very, very self-critical of the Jewish people themselves. It's one of those few books where uh, I think it was uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says something like, it, it, it's a book where the uh, the heroes uh, have, have, have flaws and, and the villains have virtues. Uh, it, it has that kind of nuance. Even the villains have great virtues, but the heroes are also flawed. Uh, and certainly the Old Testament, as you go through, it is sometimes very tribal, and that's its problem. And that's why we've been brought to Jesus, where in Jesus, 
all things ultimately come together. I mean, if you ask me what I think the key verse in Scripture, it's always say Colossians 1.17, in Christ all things hold together. Those are things in heaven, things on earth, everything all through history. You know, it comes together in this Jesus story. When we think parochial, when we think tribal, we are always making a mistake. Oh, Brian, what a joy to speak to you again. It was it was it was even richer than before. Um if my if our listeners can believe that. And I want them to also know um, that this is never meant to be a critique of them or their leadership, um, but a, a but a warm encouragement, um, both to appreciate the importance um, of unity in Christ, um, but also practical approaches uh, to come together, um, uh, you know, for, for 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 His purposes and glory. That you know that we are called to be unified and and working together in this way and uh, and just thank you so much for being part of that conversation starter that that encouragement that um yeah impetus to 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 do this more so brian thank you ever so much for joining us today well thanks robin thank you so much for all you doing i think that it's, that's magnificent and i really appreciate your work thank you bye now bye